Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. In the last podcast episode with Kate Clanchy, we talked about how she encourages her students to write poems in whichever language they choose. And then together, they use Google Translate as part of the process to work up the poem in English. This got me thinking about translation and how I didn't even hear the word until my first week as a languages student at Oxford University when I was asked to translate some archaic English prose into French. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Charlotte Ryland, director of the Stephen Spender Trust and also the Queen's College Translation Exchange to the podcast. Hi, Charlotte. Hello, Kate. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. We are going to have a little chat about translation today. So how did translation come to be such a big feature in your work, Charlotte? When did you first encounter translation? Well, I think I had quite a similar experience to you, actually, in that I experienced it for the first time when I was doing an undergraduate degree in French and German at Cambridge. And um, it wasn't a certainly the most inspiring aspect of my course and wasn't something that particularly excited me at the time. I think I saw it as a way of testing my grammar and vocabulary. Um, we were never, when we were tested on it, we weren't allowed to you know, refer to anything, any books or, or uh, dictionaries. And so I just thought of it as a way of, of testing how much of the language that I knew. Um, so it wasn't really until I went on to do a PhD in German and that I ended up focusing on a poet who did a lot of translation um, and that's when I really started to see how interesting translation was and started to reflect on it as a, um, a creative activity um, thinking about how translation how when you translate you can create a new text that speaks to a different audience so for my particular um, PhD focus I was looking at poems that were written before the Second World War and translated after the Second World War. So I ended up looking at how um, they changed as they moved across that sort of um, time space of the Second World War. Um, and that's, yeah, that's when I really, it really opened it up for me. Um, but it's kind of been a step-by-step -step process for me. I, I'm not sure I would have continued to work so much with translation if I hadn't then, um, shortly after my PhD, got a job running a project called New Books in German, um, which is a project based in the UK that promotes German language literature um, and tries to get more books translated into English and into other languages. Um, and that was a wonderful job in all sorts of ways. Um, I, it really intro introduced me to um, the, the quality of contemporary literature written in German, but it also brought me into contact with contemporary the, the contemporary literary translation scene and it really made me think about translation as cultural mediation, I guess, for the first time. Um, that, you know, the role that translation can play in opening up cultures to uh, other cultures to people, um, which is something that's always been very important to me. And I guess um, has felt more important um, due to certain political developments in this country in the past few years. Um, and so the idea that that translation has a role to play in in um, improving access to other cultures, um, whether it's, you know, giving somebody the opportunity to read a, a German crimi, a detective novel in, in English, or, you know, some um, very uh, high culture novel. It doesn't matter what it is. Translation can can bridge that gap really effectively. Yeah, it's really interesting. Thank you. So. Can I just ask a really basic question? So what actually is translation? Is it the same as interpreting? How do we do it? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, and one that we often get in the classroom when we're, um, when we're running our translation workshops. There's, there's loads of confusion about, about um, what, what interpreting is and what translation is. And I think part of the reason for that is that interpreting is a much more visible um, role that young people will have seen, you know, on, on television, for example, and translation tends to be done behind closed doors. Um, so we're usually explaining um, that translation is not interpreting rather than the other way around. So um, what is translation? Translation is basically um, transposing or um, shifting a text from one language into another language. Um, and 
that it is more, it is always going to be more than just taking it word by word, looking up each word in the dictionary and putting that uh, new word down on a page. Um, there is always going to be some interpretation, some kind of reframing of the original in order to make it work in the target language. Hmm. So how, how do we know when it's good? How do we know we've done a good translation? Yes, that's another good question. Um, <laughs> and there is an enormous amount of theory that's been written about this. Um, so I think anything that I say, there would be uh, many people disagreeing. Um, what we say, um, so in the two organisations that I, that I run when we're working with young people, we would say that um, a translation works or is good if it sounds like it's, it was written in the target language. So if we're talking about a translation from French into English, um, then we would read the English and we would say, yeah, that's uh, that that's it's, it's plausible that that was written in English. It's not clunky. It's not awkward. It doesn't sound like um, it's been uh, uh, shifted out of another language. Hmm. So you can't um, sort of see the um, machinations, if you like, of the translation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do. As I say, this is the, there is a lot, and it's a really interesting um, uh, area of, of of research and discussion as well. The um, the sort of more complex ways of looking at it and thinking about how perhaps translation should, in some way, signal its 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 translationness and and um, have a kind of foreign element to it. Um, but I think one of the reasons that we focus on that. Um, the sort of how, how effective it is in the target language is that as an exercise that then makes it um, an exercise that's as much about the source language so in the example that I've given the, the French language as about the target language the English language it means that to translate really well you have to um, have have to be very good at using your source language which is usually your, your first language or your mother tongue you have to be able to use that really flexibly um, and it forces you to really think very carefully about your own language um, which is something that we don't do very often um, and it is uh, a really in enjoyable and exciting thing to do you know to kind of think about how can you stretch the language that you use every day in order to make it um, work with this text that was written in another language. Mm, that's a really interesting explanation thanks. I think I remember when I was doing my translating um, papers for my degree you could just feel when you'd found the the mot juste like you'd found this lovely expression or equivalent or something in your own language that just sort of really did justice to the yeah. original text and yeah. it didn't have to be at all that it was a word by word translation it was just that you'd found the way you would say it in English um, exactly and it's, yeah. it's really yeah it's a really satisfying moment um, and it doesn't necessarily come straight away. You know, often you have to put the original text aside, maybe even for a day or two. Um, in my translation teaching, I've often recommended that to students, that they do a kind of first translation, then they leave it, go away, come back and look at the, at the, the English version that they've written. And you will then automatically start to see, you know, infelicities, things that don't quite work, as well as spotting, you know, the gems that you found um, and what th what that means then is that you're also learning to become a really careful editor of your own work. You're you're learning to really be able to listen to how things sound, either in your head or if you read them out. And so it's all about um, it. All contributes to becoming a better writer as well as a better reader. Mm, I was going to say you're actually a writer and an editor as well, aren't you? So yeah. it's it's not just that you're the conduit from one language to another. You're actually constructing exactly. this text in your own language the same as the writer did in the first draft of their original text aren't you absolutely the, um i had the pleasure of working with the great translation translator anthea bell for several years um at, at new books in german and um she's uh, she's one of the great translators from german and um also translated the asterix books um mm. out of french and um uh, I once heard her use the metaphor of a, a translator being somebody who, being a writer whose elbows are fixed to the um, arms of their chair, I think that was the image, or fixed to the desk. Well, I, and I've always 
this was years ago, but I've always really liked that image as um, explaining what, you know, what the task of the translator is, because it's not that it still um, emphasizes the fact that they're, they're a writer, you know, and that they, they are a creator. They do have that, um, that role as well, but they don't have complete freedom to, you know, move their arms in any way um, that they, that they want to, because, because they are um, reproducing, recreating this, this original text. Yes, they're not coming up with a new plot, but no. they are doing the plot justice in the, the language they're translating into. I thought yeah. it was really interesting. Ruth Ahmadzai, my colleague, was translating a text and it was by Kandinsky, the artist, and she's translating it from German into English. But he was Russian and she also speaks Russian. So she could see how some of his Russian grammar had informed his German and because she knew Russian as well, it was a really interesting process for her to, to kind of think, oh, what was he trying to say in his own head as he wrote it in German that he might have been thinking about in Russian? Yeah. And just absolutely fascinating. It is. It's, it, there's, there's, you can have so much fun with it. And um, I mean, that is, um, you know, that, that sort of uh, sequence of translations where you're looking at how a text moves through languages. Um, you know it, that can just be a sort of playful exercise that you that you do in the classroom where um an, an an idiom like it's raining cats and dogs you know what happens when you translate that literally into another language and then translate that into another language how far can a an everyday phrase that we know very well get um but sort of chinese whispers style mm. so that sort of leads us on to the next question really about your work with schools and uh, translation workshops so could you tell us a bit more about the Stephen Spender Trust's work with translation? Yes um, so I've been director of the Stephen Spender Trust um, for just over two years now I started in spring 2018 um, and I inherited two brilliant programs um, that I was uh, fairly familiar with already um, and really really liked and so it was it's just been absolutely wonderful to be able to um, take them forwards so the two the two programs that the trust um, uh, runs are firstly a prize for poetry translation mm -hmm. and secondly translation workshops in schools um, and this all started well the, the prize was set up in 2004 um, but uh, the the trust felt that after a few years it wanted to do some more kind of proactive work with schools to make sure that it was reaching a broader range of students um, and so it set up a program called Translation Nation in 2010 um, and that was co-founded with um, a translator called Sarah Arditsoni um, and a, uh, a then sort of EAL and MFL teacher um, Sam Holmes um, who um, have continued to work with the Trust um, and I've been working with them over the past couple of years um, and uh, the original Translation Nation was basically collaborative primary schools pupils doing collaborative translations of folk tales that they'd brought from home so it was a really nice way of um, bringing in uh, the cultures that sort of existed outside the or usually only existed outside the classroom didn't necessarily come into the classroom bringing them into the classroom giving those pupils who spoke languages other than english um extra agency and involvement kind of pride in those languages but also turning it into a collaborative exercise that um pupils from lots of different backgrounds and lots of different languages could take part in um and that had such um a great response from the participants and teachers um, that in 2013 the trust set up a program um, called translators in schools which was initially all about training translators to go into schools and do these kinds of workshops because there just weren't that many translators um, that did it you know that by then writers and illustrators going into schools was fairly standard um, but there just wasn't really a, um, a system or a precedent for translators to do it um, and so yeah. that that became a focus of the trust to um, to to train those translators to give them resources so that they could um, go into schools and do these do these workshops. Well, because they're not necessarily teachers, are they? So they exactly. You know, you've got different skills to bring and work with classrooms. 
So um, the current programme, how might it look? Like if I were a school and I said, can I get you in? How does it work? How do we apply to do it? Or mm-hmm. So the latest... Um program which has been running since about 2017 is called creative translation in the classroom Mm. and um the the difference here is that we're the trust realized that if if we wanted to kind of broaden the reach and impact of what um of this work then we couldn't always rely on there being a translator in the room to do that or we we didn't want to always rely on there being a translator there but we wanted to look at ways of enabling teachers to deliver some of the, some of this um these activities and to kind of integrate creative translation into their classroom practice mm-hmm. um and so translators do still go into schools but they also pair up with teachers um to co-develop workshops and projects um and also to um to develop resources so that the um Teach, you know teachers can draw on those resources in future years great so you're actually empowering the teachers to yeah. do things in their everyday classroom rather than it being a one-off exactly you know, that that's the celebration that, that's the big difference um that translators in schools um there was there was an element of of the translator being parachuted in doing wonderful things you know um in in the classroom but then um, necessarily leaving again to go back uh, to their translation work and w- what we're looking for now is ways of making that a more sustainable process mm. um, we don't want to stop the translators going into schools because there are, there are so many benefits to that um, not least in terms of the young people kind of seeing a professional linguist in action and seeing what um, what a life with with learning languages where that can take you I think that's a really powerful experience for them to have Mm. but alongside that we need to uh, we're looking at ways of kind of intensifying uh, the activity so can we think about what some of the benefits are then have you noticed as you've done the workshops and had feedback from the translators what what are some of the kind of joys coming out of these workshops I think one of the first things that I noticed, and this was actually before I started working for the Trust and and why I wanted to um, uh, become director of the Trust, was um, that it's about, it's about showing the, the, you know, the pleasure and the joy and the rich experiences that you can have from languages um, right now, rather than where languages might take you in five or 10 years. So I think there's been I think there's there's been a bit of a narrative in in schools, uh, and I think I think I experienced this as well when I was at school of kind of thinking about uh, languages in in a um, in a career context, and you know it, if you have a language, then you will earn x x pounds more per year, um, and you might be able to travel to these countries, and you might be able to live abroad when you're older. Um, and I, I've tried that when I was running outreach projects um, from Oxford University, where I was um, a lecturer in German for a number of years. You know, I, I tried that approach and I didn't feel like the response that I was getting from the pupils was the one that I wanted to get. Mm. Um, it didn't seem to be kind of exciting them in the way that uh, I wanted them to be excited about language. Why just why do you think that might be? Is it just too intangible? You know, when yeah. you're 25, this might have a benefit for your life. Yeah, I think it's it's intangible, and it's also it it it, it presumably it only applies to certain kinds of minds and certain mindsets. I mean, a very Is good it... friend of mine who I went to school with um, remembers a talk we had when we were I don't know in year nine or something where we were told that um, language having a language would increase our salary. And uh, presumably we were told other things as well, but she remembers that. And I have no recollection of that talk ever taking place. And I think that's because it didn't, that didn't speak to me, you know, mm. um, whereas it did speak to her. And and so I think, yeah, it's intangible. It appeals to, to it will appear to cert, appeal to certain listeners, but not, but not all of them. Um, whereas if you give them an exciting, rich cultural experience, um, that's very interactive and very accessible right here and right now that's a, that has in my experience been a much more successful way of getting them to engage with languages 
and then once they're engaged you know they're then they will continue with it or there's more more likelihood that they will continue with it um yeah. i think my experience teaching teenagers is that you know we're living very much in the moment a lot of the time in our teens and we you know not necessarily at all motivated by future benefits you want to be actually doing something right now that you're enjoying right now so yeah exactly mm. otherwise um, it's a hurdle of boredom perhaps that you've got to get over before you get to the benefit it can be yeah. really difficult to see why you would bother yeah exactly um and so so i think so for me that was that was one of the reasons why i started really thinking about how translation rather than you know any other kind of cultural um activity why translation um could could work particularly well in this context um and i've seen it with adults as well so when i was at, at new books in german i set up a program um called the emerging translators program and part of that was a day-long translation workshop for six people um and it is there is something that happens when you get people together in a room pouring over a particular text um it's there's so much energy there's so much excitement people love sharing their ideas and they and uh, they also really enjoy listening to others suggestions and kind of building them in um and so i just became yeah pretty obsessed with the idea that translation was the way to um to galvanize these this kind of potential energy and and interest in languages and, and give people a real taste for it, you know, like they actually did something right now that's using those skills and, and it's exciting and it feels really satisfying and creative um, yeah. right now. Not, you know, exactly. in, you know, some unknown future moment, you'll feel good about this. Yeah. yeah. And it's authentic as well. You know, it means that, it, that, that they're ideally, you know, they're reading a um, a text that was written for um a speaker of another language you know and and that is it is currently being read in that country they're not they're not reading something that was written for a language learner and that is in a textbook and that is kind of um has that slightly artificial language that you sometimes find in those sorts of texts yes and or is sort of watered down or written around key vocabulary mm, or yeah yeah any of those things exactly um, so shall we have a quick think about what creative translation is as opposed to, in inverted commas, normal translation? What is it that makes it creative? I mean, one way of thinking about this is 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 to think about how translation does currently occur in schools. Um, it has become more prominent on, on the curriculum at GCSE and A-level in recent years, but not, and initially I thought this would be really helpful for my work, but actually it hasn't been because... It's, it goes back to what I was saying about, um, you know, translation as a test of grammar and vocabulary. That's how it tends to be uh, to function in, in schools. And what that means is that you you have to be um, extremely uncreative, actually. If you if you uh, try to change something, uh, you know, change the word order or um, think about synonyms, then you risk losing marks in the way that, that things are set up at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. And what we do is um the polar opposite really we encourage the young translators to be as um inventive and imaginative as they can be um and that there's a real focus on um the process of translation so starting with a word for word translation but moving away from that towards something that as i said sounds like it was written in in english so that what they're actually doing is they're producing that they're creating um, a product at the end, be it a poem or um, the words for a picture book, um, that is something that is their own product. It's not um, just a kind of a, repro a technical reproduction of the original, but it's something that they have created themselves. Um, they've put a lot of themselves into it. They've thought about all sorts of different alternatives um, and they have yeah, created something new. It just sounds really exciting. It sounds like they have the chance to use their whole language repertoire as well and yeah. bring yeah. all of them to it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we've worked in, in MFL classes and in and in English classes at, at, at secondary level, you know, for precisely that reason, because it, it, it depends on, slightly depends on how you weight it, but it can be as much about um, creative writing in English 
as it as about understanding the you know the original language um i think what in terms of this your question of the you know creative versus normal translation one of the ways that we show this to pupils when we're doing a workshop is by getting them to translate idioms or idiomatic language Mm -hmm. so um you know that it's raining cats and dogs again um you we get them to think about how you know if you translated that word for word into another language it would most likely be nonsense so what do you have to do you have to think about what does it's raining cats and dogs mean then you translate that um you know it's pouring it's raining really hard and then ideally you find some idiomatic language in the target that um that means the same thing that means it's pouring with rain Mm. um and that's that's a really nice way of showing um the pupils what creative you know what you what you need to do in order to be in order to be creative with your translation and also how sometimes it's necessary you know it's not just like an added extra and fun to 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 be creative but um but that very often to translate effectively you have to be creative in that way otherwise it won't mean anything yeah to a to a reader of that um target language wouldn't it exactly and then what and that what that means is that you are thinking about your reader as well you're thinking about the, the who wrote the original and why they wrote it that way and um you know what sort of cultural um features might be present in it and then you're also thinking about your target reader and how you can get them to mm. kind of re-experience what the reader of the original experienced um so it's a really you know it's it's really complex when you think about it like that but actually you can get um nine ten year olds doing it in a really sophisticated way but in a way that's also really fun for them i think it's brilliant so um you mentioned a minute ago about the poetry competition is it what could you just yes. tell us a bit more about that yeah so the, the Stephen spender prize for poetry and translation um to give it its full title um is a very simple um idea um it's one of the things i like about it it's very it's very easy to explain you basically translate any poem out of any language into english um and at the moment it's open to everybody who's a citizen or resident of the uk or ireland and there's an adult category so nine to age 19 and over um and then there are youth categories as well uh 14 and under 16 and under and 18 and under um and what we're trying to do at the moment is think about how um, the work that we do in schools can link up most effectively with with the prize um, so that let's say for example a translator goes into a school and does a workshop um, that they would also help the teacher and the pupils to think about how to engage with the prize so that that workshop is kind of the beginning of the translation journey for those pupils um, and that they then go on to to prepare an entry for the prize um, the other aspect of the of the competition is that you you translate and you write um, up to 300 words about your translation uh, and we've changed that slightly this year it used to just be a kind of a very open-ended commentary just uh, write up to 300 words about your translation um we've changed that this year to make it more accessible so they um young people are now asked to write about three sort of challenging decisions that they had to make okay. when they were translating um, so it's a bit more about what is your process as you exactly. translated this yeah mm-hmm. And that, you know, helps the judges to, to to make their decisions. But it's also really enriches the, the process of translation for the participants because um, it, it re- requires you to kind of stop and think about what you're doing. And that's when some, some of the really interesting thought processes develop, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, what do you win if you win the Stephen oh, yes. Spender Prize? You win money. Um <laughs> there's so there are cash prizes for um the winners of every category and then um we also publish the winning translator translations in a print booklet and um on our website and there are also com- commended entries um and we have a uh, an awards ceremony as well for um for all the winners and their families 
that's absolutely brilliant. So it's a real, you know, a real kind of celebration of the process of translating and a reflection a bit of the industry of, you know, literary translation. That's right. Yeah. And and I think it's just it's a good way of kind of legitimizing the activity in the first place, um, especially if you're uh, trying to persuade senior management of schools, for example, to get involved, you know, to have that kind of prestigious focus for for the activity um i think is really helpful and certainly the the feedback that we get from from the young people who participate whether or not they win um often uh, you know they often talk about how it's made them think about uh, you know languages differently um it's given them something to write about in their uh, university applications it's kind of um you know it's just opened opened it up for them a bit more that's wonderful so as well as the Stephen Spender Trust you're director of the Queen's College Translation Exchange so what is that project about? Yes so this um, I will spare you the very long story but um, I think it is worth saying that my my association with the Trust came from um, wanting to set up something like the Translation Exchange. So I'd, I'd been a lecturer in German at Queen's College in Oxford uh, for a number of years and I had done a lot of outreach work and as I've said I've kind of become obsessed with this idea that the way to do outreach or a really good way of doing outreach is through translation um, and so I started to think about how what that might look like in practice and I got in touch with the Stephen Spender Trust to see if we could partner on, on some projects. Um, and to cut a very long story short, short um, uh, about a year later, I ended up becoming director of the trust. And so it's <laughs> been a kind of strange uh, uh, trajectory because because I'm now running two organisations that um, have that are in, that are intentionally similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the key difference um, between the two is that where the Stevens Bender Trust deploys translators, the translation exchange. Um, works with students and it has this outreach this widening participation element to it because I wanted to find I wanted to kind of systematize what had happened what had been happening informally which was that people uh, that sorry undergraduates would go into schools and do translation activities with pupils Mm -hmm. instead of going into schools and saying hey I'm a languages student and studying languages is really fun you should do it too um, that they would go in and, sh- you know, share their love of languages by showing the pupils these um, exciting translation activities. And so we worked with the Stevens Bender Trust to develop a training programme for undergraduates and postgraduates. Um, and and it, it trains them to to design workshops and then to deliver those workshops in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always make sure that as part of that, there's kind of uh, time for the pupils to ask them questions about studying languages so that it has that kind of traditional outreach element to it. Okay, great. So how can schools get involved with that if they thought that sounded interesting? Well, everybody can get involved with it at the moment because uh, due to lockdown, we shifted all of our activities from in-school to virtual. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Queen's College YouTube channel is... Um, has got some videos made by our so we call them our creative translation ambassadors made by our ambassadors um which are kind of which is an attempt our first attempt to turn these workshops into virtual workshops um and then in in real life uh the way to get involved to get involved would be to contact me probably via uh the, the translation exchange and um uh and, and just express an interest in it at the moment in our Oxford project is is limited geographically. Um, so we, we've gone into Buckinghamshire and um, into Oxfordshire schools. We also have a partnership with the British Centre for Literary Translation in Norwich. And we trained some of their students to go into schools um, in, in Norwich and the surrounding area. Um, and I hope that, 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 that we can sort of gradually spread things out that way by creating these local hubs. Fantastic. And how are teachers responding to the workshops? Have you had positive experiences of teachers or is there maybe a bit of resistance sometimes? Um, mostly positive. We 
if there's resistance, it goes back to what I was saying um, about the this sort of status of translation in schools at the moment, where um, it is, you know, it's a marked, it's a test, um, and with with a very rigid mark scheme. Um, and I I have had experiences where I've talked to teachers, and you know, shared my excitement for creative translation, and then the, and then they've they've said, well, if our if our pupils translate creatively like that, then they may, you know, they may risk getting no points at all. And uh, and so what we need to reassure teachers is that um, it, it's in some ways counterintuitive. What we're doing with creative translation is not actually teaching pupils how to do those translation tasks. We're teaching them all sorts of other things. Mm-hmm. And I've talked, I think, a lot already about, you know, there's these kind of enriching, like the authentic materials and, and getting them excited about um, what what it means to know a language. Um, what I haven't mentioned yet, which is really important to me, is that it's is that creative translation is also understood as a grammar exercise, mm-hmm. um, because to be able to translate a sentence, any sentence, you have to be able to take it apart. You know, you have to know which one's the verb and wh- wh- which noun the adjective agrees with, and and so on. Otherwise, you're going to translate it incorrectly. Um, but rather than just giving a pupil a sentence and saying label the noun you know join up the adjective to its noun um, you're saying um, do those things in order to uh, translate this and create something new and wonderful Um, and so that that grammar stuff almost happens by accident or without them really noticing um, Mm. because it has that purpose Uh, and that's one of the things that I really really like about it and when I do these workshops myself I always I always make sure that at some point we kind of jump off the let's say it's a poem we kind of jump out of the poem into some grammar exercise um that that looks at some you know some feature that's come up in the poem and just do a little bit of work on that and then jump back into the poem so that it's all part of the same creative process but we are also using it as a way of um, either teaching or consolidating certain grammar and vocabulary. I think that's a really interesting approach because um, all of the other podcast guests where we have touched upon grammar, it's, you know, if you're looking at grammar, whether it's in an English class or a foreign languages class, it's got to have a purpose because grammar on its own doesn't do anything. You know, yeah. it's got to be, you know, part of expressing something for a means to an end. You know? Exactly. Um, I think it was David Crystal who said, if you just look at the noun, the adjective, the verb, it's like pointing out the parts of a car and then saying, well, now you know what they're all called, you can drive. But you've got to think, yeah. well, where are you driving to and how do they all coordinate? And, you know, that's... Yeah. yeah, I love that idea that you jump from the poem into the grammar and back again. And Yeah, I mean, I happen to love grammar, so, you know, <laughs> that makes it easy for me. But um, but I do think that, it, you know, this is a way of making it making it more appealing to even to people who don't who don't enjoy it and in fact um one of the teachers that um Stephen Spendertrust has been working with for a long time is called Katrina Barnes she works at as an MFL teacher at a secondary school near Cambridge and she's um a real pioneer of of this kind of translation work she usually refers to it as dynamic translation as opposed to creative translation so that idea that you know there's something happening it's not just the static um shift shift from one language to the other but what, one of the things that she's noticed is that um it, it's often the less confident pupils who really get into this kind of activity and who really shine at it um which which she wonders is because there's less pressure on getting it right mm-hmm. you know it's not when you're translating in this way you're not um looking for one answer you're looking for um a, you know you're going through a process that ends up with with something very concrete um but there are lots of ways of getting there and i think that's that can be really empowering to somebody who doesn't necessarily or always get 10 out of 10 in their vocab tests you know yeah i think that could be a really interesting um benefit couldn't it because you're sort of taking them away from the mark scheme and everything only being about the mark scheme and yeah yes i think you're also making it not a really static flicking through a big dictionary find the word put it in you know it sounds like it dynamic is a great way of describing it and yeah yeah and um it sort of leads on to my question about 
whether humans or machines are <laughs> going to be the future of translation. So some people are saying that AI is becoming so efficient at translating that human translators will be out of work eventually. But I yes. think it's not necessarily humans versus machine, is it? No, exactly. Um, and, you know, it's the, the sort of Google Translate question that, um, that that comes up regularly and, and our approach is is not at all to shy away from uh, or pretend Google Translate doesn't exist. It has become extraordinarily good in, in recent years. Um, and, you know, translators have always used tools in order to um, to do their craft. And, uh, you know, it used to be paper dictionaries and thesauruses and now various machines are added in to the mix um, and you know, adding to those tools and adding to the um, the choices that are available to the translator. Mm-hmm. So they might, a, tra- a, a translator might put something into Google Translate, um, also look up the, the words in the dictionary um, or put something into, you know, another another online interface that kind of translates fra- whole phrases and, and then look at all of those options. Think, as I was saying before, you know, think about the context in which the text was written, who it was written for, think about who they're translating for um, and how they want this text to be received and then make a choice. Um, and that's one of the really enriching things about um, about translation in any case, I think, is that you're, you know, you're constantly making choices um, and mm. the, the machines just just broaden out uh, uh, the ways of, of generating those choices, I suppose, but um, they won't always um, replace it. Yeah, and it's more just the, um, the information at our disposal is really there at the touch of a button. And, you know, you, I found it really interesting to um, ask questions in forums as well. And, you know, our kind of the speed at which we can look up something or discuss, you know, oh, is it more idiomatic to say this or this? You know, we've just got so many tools at our disposal now. I think possibly the machines are just part of our repertoire. They're not absolutely, yeah. You know, they're, they're not the enemy. There seems to be this false dichotomy. Um, That's right. It doesn't have to be that it's one or the other. It's just part of the process, like we've been talking about today. Yeah, and you're gonna you're going to enjoy. Uh, a, a an activity more if if you you know if you have these tools at your disposal um so it's just about making sure that they are they're available to you and also that young translators are taught to use them in the most effective way um so one of the things we're looking at doing at the moment with our with our new virtual resources is is developing sort of guides to how to use certain online resources um so that they're being used in the most effective way Mm -hmm. so you know you're actually bringing them in to your process rather than thinking that you know the translator's process is sacred and must not be touched by machines it's actually the machines could make the process more sort of smooth or speed it up or just give you some extra choices absolutely and i'd like to just touch upon like the eal so english as an additional language and modern foreign languages. Um, again, I think this is another false dichotomy because everybody involved in these um, different labels are children learning languages. I don't think if you're already able to speak a language other than English, or if you're an English first language speaker learning French or German at school, that you're actually using that different skills. You know, everybody's kind of engaging with the same process, aren't they? Absolutely. So um, could could we see a way where translation might be helping to open up the um, boxes, if you like, that we've put pupils into? I really think so. I mean, it's one of the things that I, that has struck me as, as most bizarre. And as I've got to know more about this world in the past few years is, you know, the way that, that the UK has become such a multilingual country, um, especially in our schools. Mm. And yet at the same time, it's, uh, experience this dreadful decline in modern in the learning of modern foreign languages 
And that just seems just bizarre that that, that those two things have happened at the, have mm. happened at the same time, and it suggests that maybe something's gone wrong, and that we might need to rethink how both of those things are approached. So I totally agree with what you're saying, mm. um, and it's it, in our work. There's a sort of tendency to to still, I think, to have to put things into different boxes. Is this for EAL? You know, is this activity an EAL activity or is it um, an MFL activity? And what we're trying, what we're looking at is is ways of um, of merging the two. Mm. Uh, an example would be that uh, if we're if a, one of our translators is going into an MFL class, we encourage them to start with a warm up activity that is that just aims to create a multilingual space in the classroom. So one example of that is. Um, an activity called multilingual monsters. Uh, this is works particularly well at primary, where uh, a group draw a monster on like a big sheet of, of um, paper. They draw a monster of their choosing, and then they label all of its body parts with all of the languages that they can think of. And so that might be, you know, if they're learning French, there might be some French words in there. There, there should be English words in there. There should be English um, dialect and slang words in there as well, and mm-hmm. then all of the EAL languages. And the effect of just that really simple activity is really striking when you're watching these workshops because the the kids who have um, languages other than English, they won't necessarily have had an opportunity to bring that into this MFL class or into their um, into their primary um, literacy sessions. It's, it may have been always been something that was kind of other and that was for their home side of life and they absolutely love being able to show that they know these words and share them with their peers and then of Mm. course for their peers it's really amazing to be able to um for them to be able to see what skills their their classmates have that um that they didn't necessarily know about i loved how you included you know the different registers and dialects and slang within english as well because i think we you know, need to move away from this idea that there's one English or one variety of how things should be done. Yes. And that's one way of showing them that they're already translators. You know, everyone yeah. is, is already translating all the time because, and you know, and that idea of translation partly being about modifying the message, you know, depending on who you're talking to. And they're doing that all the time. Are they talking to their teacher? Are they in the class? Are they in the playground talking to their friends? Or are they talking to their parents? You know, um, that's... Uh, there's always that kind of negotiation and those choices are constantly being made mm. and I think that um, there are opportunities through this kind these those kinds of activities to show them that they're you know that they're doing that amazingly in their daily life all the exactly time. I really believe that if we can show children that they are all linguists already and that they yes. have already got skills to bring to a language learning situation that it's not yeah. You know, if you are an English um, language speaker and you don't speak any other languages, that doesn't exclude you from knowing skills to do with languages because you already, you know, you make appropriacy choices all the time within your different vocabulary and slang choices, etc. So, yeah, that's fantastic. I think it could be a really interesting way to help bridge the gap between things where we've kind of set up different camps and we don't necessarily need to have yeah. everything being so separate because joining things together is kind of what kids do they see the world in a connected way don't they yes they do yeah, yeah. and and that they will be hearing those languages in the um in the playground and so mm. it just kind of it gives it's again about legitimizing i think and giving giving that them status and a kind of reason um for those languages to come into the classroom and be yeah. be part of the conversation exactly and i think possibly teachers just need to feel that teachers just need to feel that they can be confident to to let that in and yeah. not to have to control every utterance or um even necessarily understand every utterance you don't need to speak yeah. all 364 languages which are present in english and welsh primary schools um, in order to facilitate, if that's our job, to facilitate yeah. this kind of multilingual approach. I mean, that monster activity that you mentioned, that could easily be happening um, with a non-linguist specialist kind of teacher. Absolutely. Um, you're just inviting the children to to show you their whole repertoire and you're giving them permission and 
Yeah. Teachers can be part of that too, can't they? Absolutely. Yeah. You're creating a structure within which something that you don't necessarily need to control will happen. Um, and, so, you know, something that you don't need to know beforehand exactly what's going to happen. Mm. Um, you're creating that structure. Um, and and I think, yeah, that the pupils really, really warm to that and really appreciate it. That's brilliant, Charlotte. Thank you. So listeners who are interested in your approach here, how can they come and find out? Where should we be looking? There are three places, I think, um, uh, online. There's the Stephen Spender Trust website um, where you can find out about uh, the prize, um, uh, where, which, for which the deadline for this year is July the 17th. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and also find out about some of our education programmes. We also have a new um, resources hub which is called multilingualcreativity.org.uk. Um, and that is basically where we're putting all of the virtual resources that we've developed. Um, we'd already started sort of thinking about ways to make our work more accessible more broadly. Um, so putting together booklets of suggested poems that people could translate for the prize and little sort of mini video tutorials of how to do a translation. Um, we'd started that already and now we're... Um, doing it in a in a um, broader way since since lockdown um so that's multilingual creativity and then the queen's college translation exchange um we have uh, a web page on the queen's college website so um that's just a, a google away um and through that th- there would be ways of contacting me directly or one of my colleagues that's absolutely fantastic thank you so much i'm really excited i think i'm going to just go and um, try and do a bit of translation with my own children in the absence of having Hooray. a class. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really exciting process. I remember my eldest has uh, a friend who is Portuguese and he'd moved back to Lisbon. And then my son started reading this series of books called The Beast Quest. And, you know, it's sort of age eight um, level of reading. And he loved it so much. He really wanted his friend in Portugal to be able to understand it so he said mum I've got to translate this book into Portuguese for Igor and so my little eight-year-old got my massive Portuguese dictionary and he sat down and he looked really purposeful and said right mum how do you say Caldor stood in the morning sunshine um, with you know the sun gleaming off his bronze armour or something like that it was this really grand first sentence and he was completely undeterred from the difficulty of it because he just really wanted Igor to enjoy this book as well. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and that's exactly, and I think Katrina Barnes, one of the things that she advocates is to give the pupils um, what she calls an assignment when they're doing these activities. So say, okay, you're you're translating this picture book for the year um, threes in your school or um, a a magazine, an online magazine has commissioned you to translate this poem um, and it's due by next Tuesday, you know, sort of to turn it into a real life activity to give it that extra sense of purpose um, and that that also it is really effective at, at um, increasing motivation and giving it yeah giving it all that purpose well thank you so much charlotte it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and Likewise. i look forward to seeing you soon thank you thanks kate bye-bye